everyone, welcome to Frontlog, the podcast about product management and product design. As always, I'm Jordan. And I'm Michael. How are you, Jordan? <laughs> I've been good. I've been good. I feel like we talk about, we start off with this every episode. So how are you today, yeah. Michael? <laughs> uh, I am okay. You know, just working on bugs at work and trying to get things done before the day ends. The usual. I see, I see. Just, just the usual life. I, I am not in that life right now. I am still on the job hunt, but hopefully something will come up soon. Yeah, uh, definitely. Like, there's more job postings now that we're in uh, February. People are back from uh, their winter vacation at home, so definitely <laughs> should see a lot more postings come up. Um, yeah, oh, yeah, it's a lot less depressing than when COVID had started, uh, when people were like, yo, yes. we're cutting hiring, we're going to cut people, like, that was, like, a depressing time, but I think, like, now as we readjust, you're going to see a lot more postings, and um, people will, uh, it's, no, remote jobs are a lot more normalized, so, like, technically there are even more opportunities now. Yeah, there's definitely more remote opportunities now, which is good, and unfortunately, Unfortunately, some companies are still laying off people. So like Dropbox, they just laid off 315 employees recently. So Ugh. yeah. Damn. <laughs> yeah. Not a good way to start off 2021, but. Yeah. That's, that's pretty weird. Cause like you see all, all these like tech stocks, like doing so well, like mm-hmm. it's hard. Like, I don't know if, it's hard to justify layoffs, but it's definitely weird to see like stocks go up and headcount mm-hmm. go down. Yeah, but it is what it is, but things are hopefully looking up. So fingers crossed for everybody else also looking for jobs right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. But speaking of things shutting down, did you hear about google stadia shutting down just after a little over a year uh first i'm gonna say that was a great segue (laughs) Uh, um but yeah i heard uh yeah um they 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 no longer want to be like um i guess this the front for the technology but they want to be more like in the background and let other companies take advantage of that stadia technology right yeah yeah It was an interesting move because at first I was a little bit surprised given how the infancy of Stadia, but also in a sense, I'm not too surprised when we look at kind of the subscription uh, gaming services that they're up against like Xbox Live Gold or for example, EA Play, because that's one that I looked at in terms of my own video game subscription if I was to get one. I mean, like, as a PC gamer, I think it's just weird to identify myself as, like, a PC gamer. But, like, um, (laughs) I think I really value being able to own my own machine. And unless, like, I'm traveling a lot and I won't be in front of, like, uh, my gaming PC, I don't really see the inherent value of um, going into getting these, like, gaming subscription uh, products. Mm-hmm. And also, I think it also comes down to, for example, how many video games from one company you purchase every year. Because 
I don't per- like myself. I don't purchase too many video games during the year, and usually I would purchase them from different companies. But yeah, I mean, I mean, it does attract a certain market. For example, like if I was to buy like four sports games from EA every year, then I would consider, of course, a subscription, which is about I think a hundred forty dollars a year for unlimited access to all games. But yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely serves. A specific market in terms of their competitive advantage yeah i think it would be a lot more palatable if it was one interface that allows you to yeah. like play games from different companies right um i'm already kind of mm-hmm. uh cheese myself where you know like netflix is no longer that leader in streaming services and mm-hmm. there are, there's so many other streaming services out there for shows like if you want to watch uh Watchmen, that's on HBO. If you want to watch um, The Boys, that's on Amazon, right? Like, it's just mm-hmm. so fragmented. Like, as a consumer, it just it just sucks. Yeah, and I think that's... It, in, in terms of, like, streaming services, it's almost becoming what TV was. Because I think the biggest attraction to streaming services in the past was the fact that you didn't have to pay for so many packages like you did with cable TV. But now it seems like that paradigm is starting to come into streaming services. So, for example, like I remember when Disney, they used to have all their movies on Netflix, but then Disney, of course, created Disney+, and they withdrew all their shows and movies from Netflix to put it on their own platform. So it seems interesting that, in a sense... While streaming services are getting popular, we're kind of going backwards in terms of the paradigm of kind of having that one platform in a sense. Yeah, uh, I definitely feel it's super interesting that like Disney is that content uh, creation machine, right? Producing all these really cool um, movies and they're, yeah. tr- they're building up that tech capability, that tech infrastructure to be able to become a streaming service whereas netflix mm-hmm. is going the other way where they have the technology and the infrastructure to provide streaming services and they're they're becoming like um like a big player in hollywood so yeah yeah especially like with all the original shows that netflix has mm-hmm. yeah and like it, it it's they, they take definitely take a, like a really cool way to um green lighting shows right it's whatever sees more mm-hmm. growth so it's a very like tech very silicon valley style of growth where it's like does this bring us does this retain the current customer base plus add more viewers um if it does then they'll like green light the show so things yeah. so some shows like altered carbon like didn't bring in too many new <laughs> um viewers so they, they canceled it mm-hmm. um, still sad about that if I haven't voiced my uh, sadness in a <laughs> previous episode. It's okay. I'm, I'm sure that the day in the future when they cancel The Mandalorian, we're both going to be very upset. <laughs> I hope not. I think Mandalorian is just like, it's like the new flagship um, for Disney in terms of like that Star Wars franchise. The Mandalorian yeah. is like the the master branch where all like all these side things are coming out right like you got the ahsoka you got boba the book of boba yes 
and you know uh, when they perfect CGI, they can do like star CGI Luke, his adventures. That's you know. true. It's interesting to see like how Disney Plus is now really starting to push all their new original shows and like the scale that they're working at now is pretty incredible because even that new Rogue One show that's going to come out, I think, in 2022 is going to be yeah. super interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is really interesting. It's like a side thing, but uh, Tableau, the analytics company, they have this like mm-hmm. visualization of the day. I think there was a very interesting visualization where uh, it kind of has like the timeline of Disney, right? Since inception um, till now <laughs> and the average um, rating for their movies, right? And mm-hmm. you can see, like, uh, when they first started, they didn't release too many movies um, in a year. And they usually had really high reviews. And as mm-hmm. they started, like, cranking out more content, um, the reviews started going down. Like, the ratings started going down. And that kind of, mm-hmm. like, it it kind of warns Disney, like, you may be diluting, like, by focusing on quantity, the quality is going to be diluted. I yeah. agree. Yeah, uh, speaking of, uh, you know, droids like the Mandalorian, <laughs> uh, I actually got a, a droid of my own. Uh, I Ooh. got a, a Roomba to automate nice. some of the laborious uh, tasks that we do in a week. So just <laughs> helping out with some vacuuming. Yes. How is your Roomba? And- how, how have you found... The, uh, the autonomous robot life cleaning for you is it accurate it uh well this one doesn't have cameras i think it does like the lidar and the radar scanning so uh, it doesn't take pictures it just it just keeps like there's an algorithm where it basically says if you run in, into anything turn and then go and then like and see if you hit the thing again kind of so it just mm-hmm. like it's meant to hit things which kind of sucks um mm-hmm it honestly like when i first got it it started just just going into like my room and then going back home and piecing it and calling it a day so mm-hmm. and there and because i don't have like a super hardcore model i can't like i i guess i can't like drive or anything so i have like mm-hmm. a very like crappy workaround you know like pms being <laughs> like all, all mvp and janky so what I have to do is I actually got to pick up the Roomba, place it in the room that I want <laughs> it cleaned, and then hit the start button. Nice. Like, it's so... It's so... Uh, uh, yeah, that that's, like, my workaround uh, for that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but uh, it, it does a pretty good job. Um, you can schedule when to have it clean, so, like, Sunday morning every day, every week. Um mm-hmm. It goes back and it goes back to its docking station to like uh, clear the clear the dust bag. Yeah, I mean mm-hmm. it's pretty convenient. Other than the fact that I have to, you know, manually move it, kind of defeats <laughs> the purpose. But you know, like, yeah, I was thinking that kind, it kind of defeats the purpose of the Roomba. So, but would you say that it cleans it faster and better than you would if you did it in person? I don't think it's about speed, but it's about mm-hmm. taking time off your hands. Like okay. instead of like spending that half an hour like vacuuming the entire house, you have this robot that you know will spend you know an hour ish going around and doing it. So yeah, yeah, 
smart technology, man. It's changing our yeah. lives. So I gave it a name because, you know, on the app, it's like, please give it a name. I named it R2-D2, you know, just <laughs> just trying nice. to, you know, tell everyone that uh, I, I like Star Wars. Uh, that's it, you know? <laughs> oh, really? I, I, I didn't notice at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, my mom is definitely is like intrigued. Like she watches it work like it's weird. <laughs> and she'll move things. I'm like, mom, you got to like. Because I'm pretty sure it needs to learn, like, what the layout of the house is. Or you can't move stuff around. So, technically, (laughs) she's kind of, like, almost defeating the purpose of having, like, an automated robot by moving stuff around to accommodate the robot. Like, it's, yeah. Maybe it's her way of secretly confusing the robot so it does a bad job and then she can make you do it again. Facts. She was the one that wanted the Roomba, so... uh, (laughs) (laughs) That would be a very... Very messed up. Yeah. Yeah. Like on Christmas, I was like, uh, mom, so, uh, Christmas present is coming later. It ain't coming on, <laughs> on Boxing Day. So you gotta wait. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I got it off Amazon and that was like one of the devices that did not come in within a week. Mm-hmm. So interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, just taking a, step back we were having a conversation earlier and just going back to like kind of when we both got into design and pm work we had this conversation of do we want to learn the principles or the processes first in a sense so you want to talk about like how we were talking about that yeah i guess like prop management prop design is just Mm -hmm. it's just so much things to learn right and um it's kind of about that like tangible versus intangible aspects of the craft and Mm -hmm. um the principles are definitely not uh, they're definitely not tangible whereas uh, Mm -hmm. like the processes the the small level stuff like ui design learning how to use figma um and maybe for product management it's like learning how to use jit right that's a lot more tangible Mm -hmm. so uh when it comes to like learning um i definitely struggled with uh deciding whether to learn the principles first or learn the processes first Mm -hmm. and yeah like i I definitely felt the same way in design so kind of my kind of my design background was that as a design as a designer we're first trained in the principles of design rather than diving straight into the ui so kind of like how I do my UX process. I don't go into the high fidelity design first. I always start from a sketch. Then I go to the wireframe. Then I do my research as well. So it kind of, it's this incremental, these incremental steps that actually influence the design at the end of the day. Because I think one of the problems when people get into UX design is they want to go and dive straight into that really cool interaction, high fidelity work, but you don't really step back and think about what is actually the experience for the user. Because I I firmly believe that design in UX is the outcome and the results of all that research and all those wireframes and all those sketches. It's the, the high fidelity design is just the end result. It definitely is, like, I I can see it 
both ways, right? Like, it definitely is <laughs> very short-sighted if you think of, like, because if you imagine, like, uh, U.S. in the 1960s, right? Like, <laughs> they didn't build a rocket for, like, shits and giggles, right? They were like, yo, we're gonna put a man on the moon. What <laughs> then, like, how do we put a man on the moon? It's, <laughs> we need something to put him there. Okay, what do we build, right? And then... Um, through that research of understanding like what they need to do and what the problems they face mm-hmm. it's okay rocket at that time that made the most sense you don't just build a rocket for shits and giggles but it's almost like it it's i think a lot easier to work on the ta- the the tangible parts first because mm-hmm. it's the first thing you see when you like before before you're like um like, I guess at a distance, that's the first thing you see. So um, maybe mm-hmm. when you're looking at what kind of careers are, you are interested in, right? Uh, and you look at what a UX designer does, it's all about, like, the mock-ups. Because um, mm-hmm. um, when I was interested in, like, the different tools that a product manager has, right? One of them, especially for validating new concepts, is the design sprint. And mm-hmm. um, the first book I read was... Uh, changed by design by i guess the ideal god uh tim tim brown and honestly it was i I didn't have a good time because i was interested in learning about um how to do it in practice right like if Mm -hmm. i had four people in the room right now like how do we how do we validate a problem and like build something real quick and (laughs) all his like all his book mentioned were the principles right like you should uh, empathize with the customer. And it doesn't really give you a how. And it was like, okay, cool. Honestly, that this book felt like an ad to hire his company to do it for you, which is kind of cynical. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I read Sprint, right? Like yeah. they gave you drawings on how things, what the layout of your room should be. Uh, they're like, okay, um, this is how you should, like, this is how you should, um, uh, I guess this is how you should um, categorize your sticky notes. This is a how I, <laughs> how might we statement. If you turn all these um, problems, opportunities, you know, strength and weaknesses, right? How do we turn them into actionable like problems to work on? Is the how might we uh, prompt? And this is how you do it. <laughs> like all these things, all these small things, are so helpful in understanding like how to do design thinking with the team like i definitely felt like that book was a lot more helpful than the principles mm. um that's interesting yeah. definitely mm-hmm. yeah because like like these books like sprint and um change by design even two books that i'm reading right now they're all in a sense a framework for design because like whenever you do design there's not really a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it but built into the design processes are guiding principles that help you find the right way to design uh, a specific service or experience and because there there are of course multiple different ways you can think of something but through these processes and through these different methodologies of thinking it allows you to really define what's going to be the optimal experience and to empathize with your users. I, I still, like, when you talk about, like, the, the guiding 
principles. I, I still <laughs> think it's important to understand, like to have a process in place before like <laughs> putting the principles to work. Like, <laughs> it, like, I think the process is almost like the MVP and the principles <laughs> are like the features you put on, on top of it and how <laughs> it kind of like tells you how you should change your process. So maybe like, because mm-hmm. I'm still like shaping my uh, what I think I, I, I mm-hmm. think like it should be like a process first it could be like mm-hmm. a shitty process or it could be like a great process as, but as long as you have a process out um, and then you think about the principles because principles alone um, don't really impact process if you don't have a mm-hmm. process in place That's yeah that's true yeah like kind of like in terms of I always like refreshing my UX skills and just keeping like building them up. One of the really good books yeah. that I'm reading right now is actually called About Face, The Essentials of Interaction Design. And it's it's been described in a sense as the UX Bible in a way because there are really good concrete examples in there in terms of how and case studies of how design and interaction design has been used at companies and even like some of the authors in there one of them is like a founder of the IXDA which is the Interaction Design Association and it's yeah. just a really good book just to kind of help you in a sense rethink part of principles and kind of just enhancing the creative and just thinking about like your methodology behind research and goals and how you approach design Gotcha. So would you say that this is the one book you should definitely read when you're trying to jump into this practice? Yeah, I definitely say it's one of the best books that you can read. It's It's been a while since I read it in school, so that's why I'm starting to reread it again now that I have time. <laughs> and when you reread, right, this is just curious, do you reread the entire thing or do you just kind of like skim through and then kind of see which bodies of text are more valuable Mm -hmm. i usually do a skim read but then i'll highlight certain areas that i like or put a sticky note on it Mm, gotcha gotcha Mm -hmm. um just interesting because um uh, when i go on the the product management subreddit and there's Mm -hmm. a lot of like because i guess it's a growing field um, everyone wants to be a product manager. Um, yeah. Everyone recommends the book Inspired, right? Mm-hmm. And it's about um, these stories, uh, not just stories, but like essentially what product management is, what is the, what is a good product management function in a company look like? So it's mm-hmm. the idea of you want to, you want product managers to inspire people on their team to be uh missionaries and spread like the vision and um the goals of the product versus like a a mercenary right where they just follow orders and it's a feature factory and they're just popping out features then really rather than thinking about the product they talk about all the different roles required for a product team and um i don't know it i i felt like i had like like without the context of actually working in a tech company, it's hard mm-hmm. to see. Whereas uh, another book, the Lean Product Playbook, it talked mm-hmm. about like 
this is what you do now. This is how this is how you write a user story. Here's an example. This is how you do use uh, user analytics, right? This is an example. Like it was <laughs> definitely more tangible in how like it's definitely I feel like a lot more useful, especially if if this is like your first when you if you're in your first ninety days as a product manager, like you read the a more application heavy book. It just mm-hmm. helps you hit the ground running, and you, you kind of like get the lingo of your product management team, like when you first start. Versus like, mm-hmm. what should a VP do? This is this is what a good VP does if he's like good, and mm-hmm. this is what you should expect of them. Like, mm-hmm. it it's a like these things are more high level and more like principally based. Like, it didn't feel applicable when I was. Uh, working and reading the book yeah that's a that's a really interesting point because i do think sometimes there is a disconnect between even like when i look at ux design between what you learn sometimes in school like when you talk to people like within a community it's good to have that community but when you get thrown into a work environment it can be completely different depending on the company because each design company has their own different design philosophies so it's not there's not really a one-to-one relationship of this is how design works. And I think also with PM, there's not that one-to-one relationship of this is how PM works all the time. Yeah. Um, and I guess the cop-out answer is it doesn't matter if you focus on principles or mm-hmm. process first, especially mm-hmm. when you're early on in your career. If you mm-hmm. think of like someone who is brand new to the gym and they're super scrawny and skinny like doing anything would put them ahead um put them on an, an advantage right yeah. so like technically like the cop-out answer is you know anything <laughs> um or you know jordan's answer it depends based on depending <laughs> on your company right are you an engineering driven company do you have like <laughs> a million engineers to 1 p.m or do you have um four or five engineers to 1 p.m. That sort yeah. of thing. Mm-hmm. Weren't those fun days, Michael, with the engineering-driven companies, all those devs, all those designers coming to you? <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it definitely is, is like, hell uh, taxing in terms of context switching <laughs> if, like, multiple engineers come to you for different yeah. things like for different problems and you gotta like <laughs> be able to like finish one engineer stuff and work on the next one like oh god <laughs> like the context switching is it's definitely a hassle mm-hmm. i agree it, it's kind of like it 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 it's almost like doing all the context switching makes your brain more malleable like it just stretches your brain out and like mm-hmm. it just makes your brain like very rubbery. I think that's like <laughs> how I see like context switching yeah. as like a um uh, like a muscle in terms yeah. of like working on your brain. Uh, but speaking about how um you know design is done at different companies, product management is done at different companies. Like I think <laughs> um when I first started at my current job, right? Like that mm-hmm. was uh, the one thing I noticed was like the differences and it's almost like I developed imposter syndrome because mm-hmm. um, some things were so much different from my previous job. I was like, mm-hmm. am I really doing product management? Right. 
And yeah. one of like the, the few things I do are like either one talk to other product managers. Uh, so I live in, or we live in British Columbia. So I'm in the mm-hmm. product BC Slack. So I might talk to one or two PMs like, Hey man, what do you do? How do you do things on the processes? Mm-hmm. Um, and just like get to know how they do things, um, how they approach problems. Um, but another thing that I've been doing really recently, even though I've, you know, um, my LinkedIn says I'm six months into my job <laughs> is that, uh, <laughs> I watch, uh, the, a day in the life of a product manager, YouTube videos, you know, they're, mm-hmm. uh, I watch yeah. those and, and they'll, they'll be like, Oh, I do this, uh, first thing in the morning I do standups and then, uh, you know, I talk to some stakeholders and then I look to mm-hmm. myself and I'm like, huh, I don't go to the standups. <laughs> <laughs> am i a real product yeah. manager like yeah <laughs> yeah I, I definitely feel the same way i think that i remember like when i first started at sap it was definitely intimidating because i went from a previous job of having only like three designers on the whole team and then like school academic projects where we're doing where we're just four designers to a very global design team of 60 designers and it's like this holy shit moment at first. Like, is this, do I actually belong here? <laughs> Am I actually a valuable designer? But yeah, I, I definitely, f- I, I get you. And I've watched those videos too on YouTube of a day in the life of a UX designer. Shout out to Chen Buns and Designer Lily. God. I, I know Chen Buns. Like, I think like she <laughs> does like the, yeah, like her, her original video was like her commuting from like her home to like the Bay Area. I like, yeah, which is like you don't see commuting anymore. <laughs> but like, yeah. I, I definitely know what you mean. Um, yeah. And like, this is like so weird, but um, kind of like the, the, I guess like the first domino that got me into the product management role was mm-hmm. actually um, this video was like Day in the Life of a Silicon Valley Engineer by like Joma mm-hmm. on YouTube. Oh, Joma Tech. Like, yes. He, yeah, he, he's like a data scientist at a large entitled company at the time. And like <laughs> he goes to like his office, he, he bikes to work and then um, yeah. and then he, he goes to the free food, you know, brings mm-hmm. the free food to his, his like giant desk. And it's like, whoa, like this is what, a, you know, this is what working at a tech company is like. That's so cool. Yeah. Like, look at all this perks. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm very, uh, very surface level guy. So I saw the perks and I was like, yo, this is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and then like, and then I kind of like looked at other stuff and eventually, well, it's more like after I saw that video, I'm like, I should totally do an internship in the U S. So I emailed yeah. my co-op advisor. I'm like, okay, I'm a business student. How do I work in the U S? And they're like, <laughs> they don't hire that many, but there's this thing called product management. And, <laughs> and then that, 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 that was like the start to like everything. So, I technically yeah. owe uh, my co-op office like <laughs> everything by by that one email reply where it's like you could pay a lot of money for this like Cornell product management certificate or you could mm-hmm. like get some job experience. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that way. I, I, I think that especially in university, people are so attracted to going into the US for internships. Like if you're from Canada. And I, I, I get yeah. the appeal and it looks really good on a resume, but I also firmly believe in that there are opportunities where you don't see opportunities because 
even like small companies in Vancouver, you because if you work for a smaller team, you could have a chance to be more integrated into the actual outcomes and have something more measurable. Because the reality is when you're like a designer for Facebook, you're one designer of thousands of designers, I think. And then yeah. do you really see the tangible impact at the end of the day for what you worked on? Yeah, definitely. I, I definitely think there's um, something really cool about working in smaller teams. Like <laughs> you just get to know the team better. You're in sync a lot better. And yes. definitely the impact is a lot higher when they're mm-hmm. less decision makers but i think it's also yeah. about like the hierarchy of the team right like is it mm-hmm. uh, led by a manager where all the information go goes to the manager before a decision is made or is it made amongst the team right um and i definitely like some decisions like i made this week like people well, like i was just in like a call with like two other engineers and we're just going off like the pros and the cons of like the trade-offs of like doing decision number one decision number two right Mm -hmm. and like you're not just and it's really important to think like as an engineer um the the decisions that um Mm -hmm. come up they don't just have engineering implications but they have design implications product implications right Mm -hmm. so it's definitely uh, like having smaller teams definitely makes you a lot like a lot more well-rounded in that aspect where mm-hmm. you get to touch technical um, design product like yeah mm-hmm. I agree definitely some good food for thought <laughs> well uh, I think that wraps up this episode of Frontlog it's as always thank you all for the support and listening to us yeah i think uh definitely uh the food for thought wasn't enough uh, i think jordan needs actual food <laughs> so uh yeah uh, let's wrap up episode 12 of the front log podcast thank you for listening right. and if you made it so far uh you know if you have any thoughts send us an email uh at hey at frontlogpodcast.com yes hey us hey us there so yeah uh My name is Michael. And I'm Jordan. Uh, We'll see you next time. 